All right, this afternoon we're looking at Colossians 2, verses 9 to 13, which I will read in your hearing so that you can have the imagery before you. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Stopping our reading then there. But looking at the structure of this section overall, which extends from verse 6 to verse 15, we've alluded to this before, but I want to uh, work it out a little more uh, in precision at the opening here today. As you look at verse 6 and compare it with verse 15, there is a clause or there is a prepositional phrase which is duplicated. Though it's a little bit difficult if you have the New American Standard to see that duplication in verse 15 because of the alternate way they've translated it. But let's begin with verse 6. There is, in fact, only one prepositional phrase in verse 6, so it's easy to um, identify that. In him. Very good. All right. So verse 6 has an in him. What do you see in verse 15? Through him. him. All right. Now, actually, the Greek is the same. In him and auto in verse 6 and in him and auto in verse 15. Though New American Standard translators have chosen to translate it differently. I would quibble with them on that for the purpose of noting the inclusio. In other words, we have a section here from verse 6 to 15, which is bound, which is included within an in him declaration. And both of those phrases, both prepositional phrases, are at the end of verse 6 and at the end of verse 15. So they're positioned at the end of the verse intentionally duplicating the pattern. All right, now, that's what frames the unit. That's what provides the inclusio. Well, what's included within the inclusio? Let's take a look at the vocabulary in verse 7, and what do you see there? You see an in him in verse 7. What do you see in verse 9? You see an in him in verse 9. What do you see in verse 10? And in him in verse 10. What do you see in verse 11? In him. Though here, the New American Standard has chosen to do what it did once before in chapter 1, to translate the relative clause and ho as in him. It should actually be in whom, if we are being literal with the Greek, but nonetheless, 
it is referring to Christ as all the other him personal pronouns are referring. So the relative here in the literal Greek of verse 11 still refers to the him person of the rest of the verses. All right, now to verse 12. With him, yes, we see with him in verse 13. With him again. All right, notice the plethora of the in him, in whom, with him. What's the motif here in this inclusio? Eighty percent, eight out of these ten verses have this in him or with him pattern. What's the motif? If you are in Christ, you are included. This is inclusio, yes. You are united. This is union with Christ motif. And here it jumps out at us. There's a... Dramatic emphasis and underscoring of being in him, with him, in whom, meaning in him as well. All right, now that union with Christ motif we have identified as the mystical union or the spiritual union or that supernatural union in which the believer is joined to the living God in Christ by the Spirit. God the Father joins us to himself as Heavenly Father, in the Son of God, as sons and daughters, by God the Holy Spirit, as those upon whom he has breathed the life of heaven. A mystical union is a union with the persons of the Godhead, which brings us to verse 9. Now, we have talked about this already when we've talked about the Christology of this epistle in chapter 1. But what have you learned already about the meaning of verse 9? This is the bedrock of your faith in the person of Christ. What have you learned about that? Who is Jesus Christ? Marge? He is God. He is the deity. He is the second person of the Godhead, but the fullness of deity, the fullness of godness, the fullness of Godhead is in Jesus of Nazareth. That's the bedrock of your Christian faith. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. Who is the Son of God? The Son of God is God. Those should be automatic responses on your tongue. They should be automatic because, well, we'll hold that for a moment. Now, this fullness, which belongs to uh, the Son, is the fullness of deity, 
which means God the Son is essential deity. He is essential Godhead. He is God in his essence or in his being, if we take the Latin sense of esse. God the Son is substantial deity. He is substantial Godhead. The substance of godness is in him. It is part of his being. It is the whole of his being. God the Son is consubstantial Godhead or consubstantial deity. That is, he has together with the substance of the Godhead that the Father and the Son have, he has that fullness of deity or godness substance. God the Son, having the fullness of Godhead or fullness of deity, is ontic deity. That is, he is the very being of God. That is his essential essence. He is not just a functional deity. That is, he's not a mere deity. That is, one who shows us what God is like without being God, God in essence, God in Godness, which is the most popular view of Jesus in theological and Christian circles today. Most Christians do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God. They believe that he functions like God. They believe that he shows us what God is like, but they do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth is God. It's only the Orthodox Christians, including those of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, who profess this, amongst others. But the majority of Christendom has a very low view of Jesus of Nazareth. They think they have a high view because he's a very high person. He's a very, very great human being, but that's as far as it goes. He is not God in the flesh. So we come to verse 10. This word complete, as the New American Standard translates it, <clears throat> in him you've been made complete or made full as the margin reads, which draws your attention to the fact that the word for complete or made full as New American Standard Margin has is the same root as the word for fullness in verse 9. In other words, made full or complete here in verse 10 is a reflection of fullness in verse 9. They are Greek cognates. They come from the same Greek Root. Now that <clears throat> draws our attention to the motif that is underscored by that word bodily in verse 9. What are we talking about here? We're talking about not only the Godhead of the Son of God, the Godhead of Jesus Christ, but what are we talking here about here when we have this word bodily in this verse? His humanity, how did he become man? By way of incarnation. Yes, so we're talking about the incarnate. He became flesh, came in incarnus in the flesh. And that means that he has a union. We've talked about the union motif in this section, but he has a union motif. 
what is united in him. Outside of us. I'm talking about him in his incarnation. God and man, say it another way. You're right, say it another way. Loretta, your answer was two minutes ago. Yes, you said human... Human, what word do I want? Human, what does he take in the incarnation? He takes a human, he takes a human, he takes a human. You're all right, but we could cover it all with one word. He takes a human nature. What does the incarnation do? What union occurs at the Incarnation? Symbol of Chalcedon, 451 A.D. Great confession of the church. Unfortunately, not used in Reformed churches. It should be. Then you wouldn't forget it. Anyway. Back to you, Ben. Divine nature and human nature. The two-nature Christology of Chalcedon. That is, there are two natures in the one person, Jesus of Nazareth. He has a divine nature, which is his God nature. That's his deity. He has a human nature, which he inherits from his mother. All right, so this motif here is the union of the divine and human in the incarnation. That word bodily underscoring the fact that that humanity of Christ is there, which which means his human nature, is joined with his deity. So here we have a verse which actually reinforces that two-nature Christology that the church has confessed actually before Chalcedon, but it <coughs> made Christian orthodoxy in Chalcedon because it was challenged. All right, so one other element to uh, think of here as a footnote to our discussion last time about <coughs> the mysteries and treasures which have been hidden from the ages, and actually that's the phrase the apostle uses in verse 26 of chapter 1. The incarnation of the Son of God, the incarnation of God the Son, a mystery hidden from the ages. The mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles, something else that was referred to there in chapter 1 when we discussed that unit. The mysteries of the treasures which are bound up in union with Christ. But the incarnation itself that God would take upon himself human flesh and join the divine nature to the human nation in an inseparable bond. That was a great mystery that was only revealed at the time of the incarnation. You can imagine the angels attempting to understand how, as the ages unfolded throughout Old Testament redemptive history, how it was that God would bring the climax of his plan of salvation and appearing into this mystery which is hidden from them. Even the incarnation of the Son of God is hidden from them. It does not become revealed until it is realized in the incarnation of Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary and his display of that divine in his human nature through his earthly ministry. 
All right, now, we once again refreshed your mind and renewed your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. The fundamental testimony on the lips of your mouth if you're asked, who is Christ? Who is your Savior? He is the Son of God who is God. He is God in two, God and man in two natures. He's God and man in two natures, yet one person forever. He still has that human nature. He has it united with his divine nature, glorified and seated at the right hand of glory. So what? Why the big deal? Why isn't a functional Christ enough? If the majority of Christendom doesn't believe that he is God, then why is that not good enough? Why is it not good enough for you? Why, in your personal faith, why is it important that Jesus of Nazareth be God? Why? Satisfied for the sins of his people. Tell me more, man. You're on the right track. Two men, which was required to bring satisfaction, that only divinity could sustain the wrath of God against them. Okay. Ben is articulating this relationship between the eternal person and the eternal penalty. You have an eternal penalty, don't you? I have an eternal penalty, don't I? How is it going to be paid? By a creature? By a functional Jesus? Remember, the functional Christ is a creature. He rises no higher than a very good moral creature. Does that functional creature have the capacity to pay an eternal debt? He does not. So what do you need, Loretta? You have an eternal debt, you need any you need an eternal person. You need an eternal person. Is Jesus an eternal person? Is the Son of God an eternal person? There's the person you need for your eternal debt. He needs to have a seed. Yes, that's what we're talking about. When we say he's deity, we're talking about his eternality. I mean that's an attribute of his deity, of his godness. So <clears throat> The point here is to understand that no creature, no matter how good he is, no creature could pay off an eternal debt. Only an eternal person could pay an eternal debt and cancel it, annul it, or blot out the decree of debt which is against us, as Paul says in this second chapter. <clears throat> We're not going to cover that today, but nonetheless, that's the issue which is at stake. This is the issue which is practical. This is the personal element in which your faith is engaged if you believe on Christ as the Son of God. You believe on him because he is the only one who is able to bear your eternal penalty and wrath and cancel it. Cancel it. Say, paid in full. Is it crucial to your understanding of what it means for you to be joined to Christ. You are joined to an eternal person who satisfies your eternal debt. He took that eternality of your wrath and debt and damnation. He took it upon himself and he canceled it on the cross. And he canceled it there because he could do it. No angel could do it. No pastor could do it. No pope could do it. 
I couldn't do it. Nobody in the earth as a creature, mere creature, could do it. Only God could do it. God the Son could do it. Otherwise, there's no real Christianity. Otherwise, there's no real salvation. Because, of course, you see, if with the majority of those who reject the deity of Christ, they're going to reject the wrath of God, aren't they? They're going to reject the wrath of God because they don't believe that sin has eternal consequences. They're going to reject the doctrine of hell because they don't believe that there is a kind and loving God who can send anybody to hell. They're ultimately going to reject heaven, except as a symbol that gives hope to people when they're on their deathbeds. But they don't really believe it's real. It's never, never land. It's uncharted territory. It's, we don't know what happens really after death. That's the sobering realization of what happens in liberal Christianity. Sobering realization of what happens in progressive Christianity. All of the essential truths are given up because the essential person is given up. He's, he's transformed. He's transmogrified into what the culture wants into what the liberal theologian wants, into what the world wants, but not what he is. Because the world can't come to grips with a God who judges with eternal hellfire those who reject his word and his son and his grace. The world does not believe in such a God because that would mean that the world is in very deep trouble. All right, so, underscoring the significance of this, the practical importance of this, these two verses are holding you into union with not just a good man, not just a marvelous moral creature, they're holding you into union with very God of very God, to take the Nicene Creed's language. That is of essential importance. That is of utter importance. That is of the most importance to you as a believer in Christianity, as a professor of the gospel of Christ, as one who holds on to the word of God as it's written in the Bible. It is essential to your salvation that Jesus of Nazareth be God, my Lord and my God, your confession along with Thomas. That is essential because if he is not, you have no hope of redemption. You have no hope of salvation. You have no hope of heaven. You have no hope. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. As Paul puts it here, no, no, not if he's not God, not if the fullness of deity isn't in him. All right. Now, I don't mean to chide you uh, by your hesitancy on this point. But on the other hand, I do mean to chide you on your hesitancy on this point. But I trust that you understand its significance. You understand how personally Important it is. You ought, you ought to be thanking God in your prayers every day that he is God for you because he can pay your eternal debt. You shouldn't be ashamed 
to thank him in your prayers that he is very God, a very God. Thank him for paying off the debt that you owe, an eternal debt, and thanking him that he's an eternal person capable of doing so and blessing his name a thousand times over for so doing. Yes, Kay. Have we helped you? Have we helped you? Well, you are, and I fully believe, and I've written it down, and I fully believe he is God, and you know, the whole thing. Now you understand why it's so important. Well, of that, course. Yes. Okay. Of course I know. All right. So now you're 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 more articulate. Yes. Okay. Except Thank you. In here, but to say it out again is is different. It's harder. Okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm 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 glad of that. So I praise I'm God for trying that. to speak for maybe somebody else too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. Now you're on the ground of our, of, 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 uh, of firm articulation. What about not being hasty to utter a word before God? <laughs> well, uh, as, as you can uh, you can tell from my peroration. Uh, this is something you ought not to be uh, slow to, to articulate. <clears throat> Nonetheless, I'm, I'm uh, encouraging you to, as to the foundation of what we've laid here. All right, now, um, that brings us to the phrase, circumcision of Christ, in verse 11. Does this phrase <clears throat> refer to his physical circumcision when Jesus was eight days old. What do you say? Art, what do you say? Well, perhaps not. Perhaps not. That, 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 that's not very definitive. What's the answer to the question? Is this referring to Luke 2.21, in which the circumcision of Jesus on the eighth day is recorded? I would say it's included, but it is not. It is not uh, that within, within the circumcision. Okay. The, uh, well stated, then. Now, it, it could be included, and it is included in some sense, but it is not the event to which this verse is referring <clears throat> So that phrase, you were also circumcised, does this refer to the Colossians' physical circumcision? Ben, you shook your head. No, it's not. This is not referring to the physical circumcision of Christ, Luke 2.21, any more than it's referring to the physical circumcision of the Colossian Christians. Notice that phrase, which has already been referred to, circumcision made without hands. Art mentioned that. What does this refer to? Does it refer to the physical rite or the physical ritual? No, obviously not. It's made without hands. It's a spiritual reality that's being referred to here. In fact, it's the supernatural reality. Without hands, not a natural act, but a supernatural act. 
a supernatural reality which is signified by the physical ritual. All right, so the physical rite of circumcision symbolized the spiritual reality to which circumcision pointed, namely the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision of the heart, the regeneration of the soul by removing or cutting off the sinful nature passed on by ordinary generation. Circumcision is a symbolic rite. It is symbolic of spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is the cutting off of the sinful nature, which is passed on by ordinary generation. Now, this supernatural or spiritual circumcision has occurred to the Colossians in Christ. They have been regenerated in him with a non-natural, notice supernatural, they have regenerated in, they have been regenerated in him with a non-natural regeneration without or apart from human hands, human agency, human potency, but by divine potency, divine agency, divine hands, in other words, a supernatural transformation. All right, you following me? We have the significance of circumcision as a spiritual rite, which refers to the circumcision of the heart, the cutting off of the sinful nature by regeneration. Now, for the Colossians, such a circumcision in Christ is not possible unless Christ undergoes a circumcision which will make this spiritual blessing a reality. I'm going to repeat that. Such a circumcision in Christ, which is what is being described here, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, such a circumcision in Christ, because this is union with Christ motif, spiritual union, such a circumcision is not possible unless Christ himself undergoes a circumcision which will make this spiritual blessing a reality. Christ must undergo a circumcision, yet it is not the circumcision of his flesh in Luke chapter 2 at eight days of age. But he must be circumcised in some physical way, some historical manner. If the spiritual benefit of having our sins cut off, having our sins removed, is to redound to our regeneration. The historical reality of the removal of the body of his flesh Notice the language the apostle uses here. The removal of the body of his flesh, stripped or cut off from him. That is, the body of his flesh cut off from his spirit, his human soul in death. That body of his flesh 
charged vicariously with guilt, the corruption, the depraved nature of those for whom he is being circumcised, that body of his flesh goes to the grave, is buried in a tomb, finishing his circumcision of body separated from his human soul in the death of that old body in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. Colossians 2.11. You may not have. But you must think about the profundity of what the apostle is saying here. He is drawing attention to the significance of circumcision as a right, but he is drawing attention to it because of its supernatural symbolization, signification. He is drawing attention to it for the uh, Colossians because they had no circumcision. Notice verse 13, the uncircumcision of your flesh. But they cannot be redeemed without being circumcised in the circumcision in Christ. Well, what circumcision is that? It is certainly not the circumcision of an eight-day-old boy. That provides no death to the body of the flesh. So what is this death to the body of the flesh or removal of the body of the flesh that the apostle is talking about? He attaches it in verse 12 to being buried. In other words, there's a transition or there's a relationship between the removal of this body of the flesh and the burial. So in one word, what is he really talking about when he's talking about the circumcision of Christ in that 11th verse? One word. Mm, okay. What historical event? The cross. Exactly. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the cross as the circumcision of Christ. Now, to answer your question again, Randy, this is the only place in the Bible that I'm aware that this is suggested. But, as we will see going on in analysis of this unit, is this falls out naturally from the sequence of his thinking. You have to get your head inside the sequence of Paul's thought here. Because he's going to also add to circumcision here in verse 11. He's going to add the word baptism in verse 12. And now we're going to have to think about something else in the profundity of the apostle's mind. All right. Now, you've gotten the idea from just that one word answer, that this phrase, the circumcision of Christ in verse 11, is referring to the cross of Jesus. He is cut off. He is circumcised in that sense. He is cut off from life by death, which of course is the symbolism that circumcision suggests. The cutting off of the old life of the sinful nature and putting it to death by the circumcision of the heart. 
Now, this circumcision of Christ cancels the uncircumcision, verse 13, of the Gentile Colossians. It is certainly not a reference to his physical circumcision at eight days of age. It is a reference to his circumcision in being cut off from life in the death of the cross. He bears the weight of the sin nature in the body of his flesh, and that avails for the sin nature or fleshly nature of the body of his people, his church. He undergoes circumcision physically on the cross so they can undergo regeneration spiritually in him or a circumcision in him which is spiritual and regenerative. Now, notice how our explanation of the phrase, the circumcision of Christ, namely that that means his crucifixion. Notice how this phrase is symmetrical. It's symmetrical with the concluding phrase of the apostles' next three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14. We are suggesting that this phrase The circumcision of Christ is a clear reference to his crucifixion, to the cross of Jesus. Notice what the apostle says in verse 12. Raised him from the dead. Where did he die? He died on the cross, the end of verse 12. Has forgiven us all our transgressions, the end of verse 13. Forgiven us our transgressions, how? Through his crucifixion and death on the cross. And finally in verse 14, Nailed to the cross, <clears throat> concluding this symmetry of reflective or <clears throat> a duplicative uh, terms and explanations. There's no mystery then about the meaning of the phrase circumcision of Christ at the end of verse 11. Because it is emphatically parallel and exegetically symmetrical with the ending phrases of verse 12. Verse 13 and verse 14. He repeats himself fourfold in order to drive home what he's referring to in this clause, the circumcision of Christ. He doesn't want you to miss it. So he says it at the end of the next three verses. We are therefore confident that our interpretation of the circumcision of Christ in verse 11 is Paul's reference to the cross of Christ Jesus in this whole section, as he says four times over. So there's no mystery hidden in that phrase, circumcision of Christ. It's Paul using that phrase to talk about the death of Christ Jesus on the cross. Now, yes, Randy. It's separating the old nature from the regenerate nature. Okay, It's indicating that there needs to be a transformation of nature, a circumcision of the heart, a transformation of the soul, a regeneration of the life. It does set you apart. That is true. But it sets you apart into a union, into a community which honors that mark. 
in, in some sense, that is true. But it's not so much cut off from the world as you are drawn in or uh, made fit for God himself. Hold off on hold off on baptism. Hold off on baptism. We're, we're not to verse twelve yet. Go ahead, Ben. That that's fine. That's fair enough. I'll, I'll, I'll I accept that. Which goes back to your previous statement that is included in in some sense. So. <clears throat> Yes. All right, now, bear with me as I wax redundant. And I'm doing this in order to repeat what we have already learned about this phrase while adding a nuance which I did not emphasize when we were discussing it heretofore. Christ's circumcision is the death removal of the body of his flesh from union with his spiritual soul, the body of flesh being his vicarious being of bearing of sin, being made sin, as Paul says, Second Corinthians 5:21. That vicarious bearing of sin is cut off in his circumcision on the cross. He is circumcised by crucifixion. His sin-bearing flesh is cut off in death, circumcised unto death. That fleshly, vicarious, sin-bearing nature is removed, cut off, excised by death on the cross, so that Christ's eschatological circumcision puts to death the circumcision of the flesh once and for all, seals in the body of his flesh the end of the ritual circumcision of the flesh. For Christ's crucifixion circumcision fulfills completes, finishes the circumcision of the flesh ritual and the circumcision of the flesh spiritual. Circumcision as a rite and as a spiritual sign is over. It is over in Christ's eschatological circumcision. He fulfills and finalizes it. Circumcision as a rite has been completed. Circumcision as a right and spiritual sign is completed. It is fulfilled. It is ended. It is a embodiment of the fullness of circumcision in the cutting rite of crucifixion. The body of the flesh is cut off in his crucifixion circumcision. The sinful fleshly nature is cut off in his vicarious crucifixion circumcision. The circumcision without hands, that supernatural removal of sin, that has been accomplished in the circumcision of Christ on the cross. I'll say it this way. Sin is removed from him vicariously in the circumcision of his flesh on the cross. In him, sin is removed from us imputatively in the circumcision of his flesh on the cross. And here... In Colossians 2.11, here is the eschatological circumcision. The once and for all circumcision. The circumcision that ends circumcision. Christ nailed to the cross. That's the eschatological end of the circumcision of the body of his flesh 
and the body, the flesh, as a ritual ceremony having religious significance. No more. No more. It's over. It's completed, fulfilled its purpose in the cross circumcision of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, now let me take a break, draw a deep breath, and come back and we'll take on verse 12. Now, verse 12 presents a grammatical question that involves the translation of in which, as the New American Standard renders the prepositional phrase, buried with him in baptism in which you were raised. The issue here is the antecedent of the relative pronoun. It is the antecedent of the pronoun in this verse Baptism, thus, which baptism, in which baptism you were raised up with him? Or is the antecedent of the relative pronoun here, the personal pronoun, him, thus, Christ, in whom you are raised? New American Standard has been influenced by Baptistic persons in translating it in which, whereas I am not influenced by Baptistic persons, and I believe it should be translated in whom. Now, why do I say that? You will notice in the previous verse 11, he uses the same Greek expression to refer to Christ. In whom, even though it's translated in him in verse 11, We pointed this out when we were looking at the structure and the paradigm of the inclusio of mystical union. In whom you were circumcised. So, as he has used that phrase in the same Greek uh, uh, construction in verse 11, definitely referring to Christ with the hymn in verse 11, by consistent parallel argument or parallel symmetry, the in him or in whom here would refer to Christ, refer to the him in verse 12. Coming back to verse 12, it is not baptism in which as baptismal rite or baptismal ritual, rather it is baptism in whom, as person in whom we are baptized. So the issue here is, is it the ritual act, baptistically supposed, or is it the person in whom we are united? The grammar and proper translation here unites us to Christ as a person, whom, not baptism as a rite or ritual or even a sacrament, which... The idea here is parallel to Paul's statement in Romans 6, 4. We have been buried with him, that is, with Christ, through baptism into death. That baptismal burial, as John Murray points out in his excellent commentary on the epistle to the Romans, that baptismal burial is a union with Christ motif. It is not a sacramental ritualistic motif. We are joined to Christ in his death and burial, 
what our Savior himself called the baptism with which he was to be baptized. Mark 10, 38 and 39, Luke 20, verse 50. The baptism with which Christ was to be baptized was his baptism by crucifixion and burial. This baptism with which he was to be baptized was his being joined to, united with, death and burial. It is a union motif. We're talking about mystical union in the structure of this whole unit from verse 6 to verse 15. This is a union motif. All of this imagery is unto identification or union in Christ and through Christ. And Paul in Romans 6 continues the motif of baptism as union with Christ when in the very next verse, verse 5 of Romans 6, he writes, we have become united with him. Notice what he says there. Baptized unto his death, verse 5, verse 6, verse 4, rather, verse 5, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. He gives you the, the union motif, exegesis of the spiritual union interpretation right in the very next verse. You're not talking about baptistic ritual. He's talking about union with Christ, spiritual. In other words, Paul, Romans 6, places the emphasis of baptism not in the mode of the rite or the manner of water administration. Rather, Paul in Romans 6 places the emphasis of baptism on union with Christ being joined to his death and burial. Being joined to Christ in his death and burial, this is our being baptized, baptized with the baptism with which he is baptized. Jesus isn't talking about water baptism when he's talking in Mark 10 and Luke 20. Thus, the emphasis of Romans 6, 4 to 5 and Colossians 2, 11 to 12 is not on the rite of baptism or even on the rite of circumcision for that matter, but what the rite signifies. <clears throat> circumcision, verse 11, signifies union. Covenant union with the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Baptism, verse 12, signifies union. Covenant union with the living God and Father of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice the language of conjunction. With him in union with him, in him, with him, in whom, that is union with redemptive historical acts, redemptive historical facts, joined to Christ, united with Christ in the crucifixion of the body of the flesh, joined to Christ, united with Christ in the baptismal burial of the body of the flesh. This is union language, union motif language. Covenantal union motif language. Though the interchange of circumcision and baptism here in Colossians 11 and 12 is more than a visible sign, a blood-cutting rite, and a water-washing rite. If union with Christ's language is primary, as Romans 6, 4, and 5 makes explicit, then union with the God of the covenant is primary in the words circumcision and baptism. I'm plateauing from union language to covenant union language. 
Circumcision and baptism represent covenant union, joined to God who graciously initiates the covenant union and relationship. But here's the problem. Union with the God of the covenant requires a death, a death to the old sinful nature and a rebirth to a new regenerate nature. It requires a cutting off of the deeds of the flesh as it requires a washing away of the deeds of the flesh. Circumcision depicts a transition from the old outside the covenant to the new inside the covenant as baptism depicts a transition from the old outside the covenant to the new inside the covenant. Now, follow closely. What I am saying here is that all of this is reinforced and confirmed when we consider one last text, 1 Corinthians 10.2, the baptism into Moses in the Red Sea. Now, I will add to that Jesus' own baptism at the Jordan River. What is primary here? What is primary in these baptisms, the baptism into Moses and Jesus' baptism into Jordan, is not the manner or method of applying the water. Israel was certainly not immersed in the waters of the Red Sea, for instance. Rather, what is primary here is what the passage through the water indicates. In fact, the water baptism of Israel at the Red Sea and the water baptism of Jesus at the Jordan are transitions. (laughs) They are transitions marking the end of the old and the beginning of the new. That is what's underneath them. Both of them, the end of slavery and bondage for Israel and the beginning of freedom and liberation in the wilderness sojourn. Participation, identification with that drama. That is the significance of the water baptism into Moses at the Red Sea. And at the Jordan River, the end of the old era, the end of the law and the prophets and the beginning of the new era The dawning of the age of the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, is signified by the water baptism of the Son of God, so declared by his beloved Father and confirmed by the descent of the Holy Spirit upon him. It is a new age that is broken forth in that water transition of Jesus of Nazareth. Even as it is a new age for Israel, which has broken forth in that baptism into Moses at the Red Sea. Here then, in Colossians 2.12, the baptism in Christ's burial is not an expression of the mode of baptism. It is a revelation of the transition between the old dead body of Jesus and the new resurrection body of Jesus alive from the dead. Union with Christ is a baptism, meaning a union with his death burial and a union with his life resurrection. That's what baptism is is showing you. It is showing you a union with Christ. Parallel to Paul's duplicate argument in Romans 6, 4, and 5, the apostle declares to the Colossian Christians that they are in Christ, with Christ, by burial baptism into his death, as they are in Christ, with Christ, 
by resurrected life anew by way of his resurrection from the dead. The old age of death is replaced by the new age of resurrection life. The old new imagery is consistent, even uniform, in the deeper significance of both circumcision and baptism, especially the circumcision and baptism of Christ into which we who have believed in him have been united with him, have been circumcised and baptized in him. The baptism with which I must be baptized. You too shall be baptized with it. Now, I'm underscoring the transition, the translation, the reversal from the old to the new in the reverse relation between the old Adam and the new Adam. The reverse relation between the sin nature and the rebirth nature. The reverse relation between the death nature and the life nature. The reverse relation between the burial nature and the resurrection nature. And as I follow the apostles' lead in this section, I note that he dramatizes all this by the way of the narrative biography of Christ. The narrative biography of Christ is how he dramatizes this imagery. You will notice the emphasis upon the incarnation in verses 9 and 10. We've already pointed that out. The life of the Son of God in the body, a union which reflects the union with the Son of God in the life he graciously gives. The biography of Christ continues in verse 11 with his death, his circumcision on the cross, union with which joins us into his death to the body of flesh. Next, verse 12, the narrative biography of Christ's baptismal burial, union with which joins us to the eschatological division between old curse and new benediction. And finally, verses 12 and 13, the narrative biography of Christ being made alive by resurrection from the dead, union with Christ joins us to the new life of his resurrection body. This language and this imagery is redemptive historical in its dramatic significance. It is drawing us into what happened to Christ. What happened to Christ in his eschatological circumcision, what happened to Christ in his eschatological baptism, what happened to Christ in his eschatological resurrection, what happened to Christ in his eschatological crucifixion, what happened to Christ in his eschatological being. This is the drama of your life. This is what you have been joined to in a reversal of your old man and a rebirth of your new man in the circumcision of the cross of Christ, in the baptismal burial of Jesus of Nazareth, in the resurrection to life anew, in his resurrection. All that is the drama of your story. Paul has never seen these Colossian Christians. He has never been able to say to them face to face what occurred to him on that Damascus road. Notice, this is what happened to him when he was translated from old man to new, from darkness to light, from Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. This is what occurred to his story. Now, you Colossians, dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, I want you to know that this is my story, this is Christ's story, this is your story. And here's the drama of it. 
And take all that imagery of circumcision and baptism, etc., and take it and put it into Christ. And, and the light, love, praise God, thank the Lord, thank the Son of God in glory for drawing you into that union of that drama. There's where you live. You live in the circumcision of the dead body of the flesh to the old nature and the resurrection and regeneration of the circumcision of the heart in the new nature because Christ was circumcised for you. You live in the burial of that baptism of the old and the, <clears throat> and the release and re- declaration of the new as you are buried with him in baptism and raised with him by new life from the res- by resurrection from the dead. And isn't that the sweetest of all parts of the story, that that old new translation, that old dead corpse of Jesus, that old corpse of Jesus is alive from the dead. It's renewed. It's been regenerated. It's been raised up itself. So that you may be raised up. So that you may be regenerated. So that you may be baptized unto the resurrection of new life in Christ Jesus. Here is the drama of Paul's story, which is the drama of the Colossian story, which is grace upon grace, the drama of Christ's own story. And you belong to Christ. You belong to this story in the profundity of it here, in the richness of it here, perhaps in ways that you never thought of it here. And I'm not infallible. But I believe I'm following the lead of the Apostle's language and the significance of the imagery that he is using here. This transition in union with Christ from the old to the new, whether it's by the image of circumcision, the image of baptism, the image of crucifixion, the image of resurrection. It is the same pattern, the reversal of your old man, old woman nature and the birth, rebirth of the new man, new woman nature that's given to you in union with your Savior by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of your Heavenly Father in Heaven. Randy, you've been patient. Yeah, you shed some new light on the Peter passage for me, too. I always wondered about not as a removal of a body. I mean, this washing away of dirt kind of ideas superficial and it goes but he goes on to say as an appeal to God for a good conscience and what you've been saying really throws light and a blessing on the idea of being able to have a clear conscience thank you is really is beautiful you know yeah thank you being for recognizing bad conscience is the worst thing that sin does to us I think probably among a lot of other things. Yes. The renewal of the conscience. To become a good conscience in Christ Jesus. Yes, thank you for that observation in 1 Peter 3. Yes, Ben. I have a little bit of difficulty with verse 12. When you say that the in which, perhaps should be in whom. Because then then it says... uh, the sentence as it becomes then, in which, or in whom, rather, in whom you were also raised up with him. It seems like uh, saying the same thing twice. Yes, it is. In fact, it's saying it twice in order to emphasize it, in order to underscore it. 
That is, he doesn't want you to miss the fact that the in him relationship is a resurrection with him. Where he's moving on beyond burial to the resurrection motif. So you see the progress. He progresses from incarnation in verses 9 to 10 to death or crucifixion in verse 11 to burial at the beginning there of verse 12 and the transition, which in the next part of the history of redemption, the history of Christ's life, is resurrection. So he's, he's shall we say, uh, doubling up on that union motif in order to underscore it. He doesn't want them to miss the fact that they have been raised up with him in his resurrection, even as they've been buried with him in his burial. Well, if I make it a little less awkward for you, that's the best I can do. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm following the sense of the Greek there. All right, now, let's let's summarize. We have here union and communion motifs. Because there's communion out of union, isn't there? There's communion with the triune God. There's communion with Christ in being united to him. There is an exchange of relationship. You're united to him and you commune with him. He communes with you by the Spirit. All right, so there are communion... And union motifs anchored in the incarnation of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And to all of this, the narrative biography, Saul of Tarsus, is joined. To all of this, this narrative biography, Saul of Tarsus, is joined to become Paul the Apostle. And the Colossian Christians are joined too. Colossian Christians are joined to become Colossian, Colossian pagans are joined to become Colossian Christians. And we who believe dead in trespasses and sin are joined to become alive in the incarnate, crucified, dead, buried, and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's biography mirrors itself, unites itself with Paul's biography and unites itself mirrors itself with the Colossians' biography, even as it unites itself, mirrors itself to our biography. Ours as theirs, as his, in Christ biography. There is the precious union, the wondrous reverse relationship, the blessed inclusion in the history of redemption come to its fullness. And the Son of God our Savior, and his incarnation, his circumcision, his baptism, his resurrection. All these riches, all of these treasures are ours with Christ, in Christ. Praise be to Christ's name, to the glory of God and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we bless you for the richness of the revelation that you have vouchsafed to the apostle and preserved for our edification and our delight. How we treasure these precious images and truths which are bound to us in union with Christ 
our life in Him, our death in His death, our burial in His burial, our resurrection in His resurrection. Oh Lord, how sweet a message this is, how sweet a reality it is, how sweet a reversal this is that all of the old and deplorable and sinful and shameful and grief-bearing sins that we have committed and that nature which produces it and spawns it. Oh, Lord, it has been put to death in our Lord Jesus, and we bless you for it even as we struggle continually with the power of the Spirit against the remainder of sin that is in us. Oh, bless us, Lord. Bless us in our walk and profession. Bless us in our union with Christ that we might sweetly rejoice and delight in him and in the life that is in him and in the communion of the saints that comes through him. And so we bless you through Christ Jesus, our Lord, by and through the work of the Spirit in us, thanking you that we can confess you as our Father in heaven. Amen.